On 18 September 2018, the United Nations Independent International Fact-Finding Mission on Myanmar released its full findings detailing evidence of Myanmar military's crimes against humanity. The UN report has called for investigation into the crimes that could amount to genocide and the removal of the military from political and civilian life and said that democratic transition in Myanmar is at a standstill. Ahead of the release of the 400-page report, our editor Anoita Mojumdar spoke to Radhika Kumaraswamy, one of the three members of the fact-finding mission. Kumaraswamy spoke about the difficulty of investigating without access to the area, the challenges on the road to prosecution, and the disappointment over the spectacular failure of an inspiring movement for democracy. So Dr. Kumaraswamy, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. Uh, the UN's Independent International Fact-Finding Mission on Myanmar, of which you are a key member, has found evidence that warrants prosecution of Myanmar's top military leadership for genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes. Can you tell us a little about the process of investigation and how difficult that was? Well, I think the important uh, thing is that first, the government of Myanmar did not allow us in, but yet we managed to get overwhelming evidence. Um, and the evidence was first, uh, we had a, uh, about a 25-member uh, team, uh, many of them f uh, stayed in the field in Cox Bazaar and in Thailand and in uh, Malaysia for long periods of time collecting testimonies. We also visited and interviewed some, some of these witnesses. Then we had satellite imagery. Um, we had videos, we had photographs, uh, all of this verified by, we had uh, the assistance of uh, military experts and, and toward the latter stage forensic experts and uh, experts in various fields helping us in psychology, what to deal with the, you know, there's a part of uh, genocide which is about mental harm. So we were looking at all of that. So we were quite overwhelming the evidence we would say and also what is we decided because it's a human rights uh, inquiry it's on reasonable grounds uh, so we, on reasonable grounds we felt that what was warranted and this is often missed in the news headlines is an investigation and prosecution of these people for war, uh, genocide crimes against it's more like a charge sheet rather than an actual uh, verdict. Did you feel that the fact that you were not allowed in uh, compromised or limited the investigation in any way? Well, I think, of course, if we had been let in, uh, uh, it would have been good, but one wonders uh, other mechanisms that have been let in said that you really not allowed any freedom of movement or investigation, so how much it would have helped us is another question, but at least we would have heard the Myanmar government's point of view. Uh, but we did have informal contacts with Myanmar government officials, but it would have been good to have their point of view on record. Uh, though we managed to glean it, uh, their commander-in-chief and the state councillors, uh, press officer and all are constantly on Facebook and Twitter and all this, so we can glean the policy and what's going on, their viewpoints, etc. But it would have been good to be able to meet with them. 
as you just pointed out, uh, this is a charge sheet rather than a verdict, and your report calls on uh, for further investigation and prosecution. How far do you think that is actually possible? Well, I think, well, first now the ICC has uh, opened a case on forced deportation. Uh, they have said that they have jurisdiction of that. Uh, so in the area of that and other cross-border crimes, there is now, uh, we can provide what evidence we have to the ICC. But uh, otherwise, the idea was to uh, ask for a triple IM, as they call it, an independent impartial investigative mechanism. That'll kind of... Uh, create prosecutorial files on individuals who are involved in these crimes. Uh, and these files then can be used in universal jurisdiction cases, that's if people, countries that have that strategy, or it can be used in, um, uh, if a court is finally set up or there's full referral to ICC. But at least they'll be on record before the evidence dies, full collection of the facts. And this could be pursued despite the fact that the Myanmar authorities may not cooperate at all. Yes, because this will either be set up at the Human Rights Council or the General Assembly. The idea is to have the Human Rights Council pass it and the General Assembly endorse it. And there's a lot of political will. Uh, as I said, uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, strong they support some kind of mechanism by the European Union, by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, um, to set up this kind of uh, mechanism. You've mentioned political will, uh, but uh, your call for prosecution comes at also at a time when the UN and the ICC are going through a difficult time. Uh, the UN has been challenged in some part by the U.S., which has withdrawn its support to the U.N. Human Rights Council. Yesterday, we saw John Bolton, the U.S. National Security Advisor, threatening uh, the ICC. Do you think uh, these bodies have the influence to carry out something as contentious as this? Yeah. Well, I think um, it would be good to have the United States on board. Um, uh, and not uh, play this kind of role. But I think uh, in the case of Myanmar, strangely, the United States has supported the European Union position and uh, they have also supported uh, our report. You know, Nick Haley in, in, in the Security Council mentioned that uh, the State Department had done some research and it seems that our report is in line with that. I, mean, I won't say open support or whatever because we're a mechanism of the Human Rights Council, but they don't, have not attacked it or gone against it. And uh, they come to the briefing, our briefings, which is rare in Geneva, they don't go to most briefings. Um, so I feel they may not allow this to go to the ICC, uh, but I don't see them uh, opposed to the first the IIIM mechanism. Uh, and that's why I think people want to take it to the General Assembly so it gets their endorsement in other countries who are not on the Human Rights Council. 
Uh, and I don't, uh, see, and they may even support an ad hoc tribunal if that gets passed. But that I think that there's a Chinese veto also on that to uh, deal with. But uh, on Myanmar, they have not been too. Um, they have actually supported uh, the activism of human rights groups and also uh, a power report. You just mentioned China. So, mm. what role do you think China could play, which could be either supportive or detrimental to the process? Well, you know, everybody thinks China is this uh, stop it and block it. And uh, uh, my sense is that um, they're pragmatic and. Um, uh, they don't want uh, to see, I think, the government uh, collapse. But I think if there is, uh, uh, if a case is made to them, uh, that actually this will strengthen the government. If, if some of the uh, people who are behind that kind of violence are not in power, may actually strengthen the civilian authorities. Uh, it could be that at uh, some point they might even uh, support the process. But of course, they are, have a thing against interfering in internal affairs. But uh, I think one has to try and make the case. They don't have to vote for it. They can abstain, like they did in Libya and other places. You just made the distinction between the military, the Tatmadaw, and the civilian government. And of course, uh, the most of the focus of the report is on the military. Mm -hmm. and its culpability. Mm -hmm. uh, what responsibility do you think the civilian government of Myanmar bears? So we looked at this in detail and it is very clear that they had absolutely no role in the planning and command structure of what took place in August or before. And the ministries that were in charge were clearly um, with the military and the military did not have to get the approval of the civilian part of government. Um, so we're convinced that they were not uh, any part of the actual operations. But then we noticed that uh, they did uh, provide um, kind of a cover-up after, cover afterwards as well as uh, uh, the fact that they um, kind of looking into the uh, situation, giving uh, arguments, stopping people from going into the country, uh, Start making it difficult for UN mechanisms, uh, putting out press releases and other things. So they, so the word we use, it they contributed to an atmosphere that uh, allowed for this to continue after August. Would you say there is also moral culpability in what happened, not just in the aftermath and the cover up, but in the actual operations? Well, I think there's no moral culpability in the actual operations though what uh, but what I would so, say so you think the civilian government was not aware I, of it while it was happening? No, I don't think they were aware of that operation clearance operation but the rules and regulations regarding travel restrictions we have a whole section on the rules from birth control to uh, all kinds of restrictions on the Rohingyas which have been there since 2012, that they would have known. And may have, uh, it's, uh, I think it's the acting Rakhine government that enacted them, but still, you know, there was, uh, there, all that they would know, have known about. 
the fact that they refused to use the word uh, Rohingyas. Um, so in that sense, they have not been at all morally involved. But of course, I, I would not, I don't think we would, but we, why we made that distinction was to think that they were involved in the clearance operations that amounted to genocide investigation. We're not convinced that that is the case. It's interesting you're going back to 2012 and uh, what has happened in that area mm. regarding the restrictions on the Rohingya mm. from birth control, the citizenship issues. Mr. I, yes, exactly. Um, your report also calls uh, for a comprehensive independent inquiry into the United Nations involvement in Myanmar since 2011. Could you speak a little bit about that, why your Investigation well, well the United Nations had formulated after uh, its experience in other countries uh, uh, a human rights upfront policy uh, so that its officials in country would always raise human rights concerns. Uh, from what we gathered from people was that this was not being followed. Now, we did not have a specific inquiry into the UN. That was not in our mandate, and also we were focusing on the crimes. So we can't come to conclusions, but so we've asked for an independent inquiry uh, because there, there are allegations that they may have even ignored uh, certain warning signs. And I would say uh, it's just management practice. No, you would do you would review a situation in which something like this happened uh, and find out what were the lessons learned and what are the best practices. So one would think it's a natural thing to do, but that also was not done. So you think there were enough warning signs over the, the past several years which... In the, since October, there were reports to the UN from various independent consultants uh, that... Uh, that, they, that things were building up. And but of course, the, some of the issues regarding the Rohingya issues which go back several years. And yet it's uh, not even two years since countries were lifting the sanctions against Myanmar and celebrating the return of democracy. It seems an incredibly short space of time in which international opinion has gone from one of celebration to one of shock and uh, disappointment. You know, I think this is the complexity of Myanmar in the sense that there was some limited opening in 2011 and average Myanmarese, we are told, and the ones we did meet, some uh, did feel that 2011 was a watershed year, that elements of democracy came. Um, the world came in, you know, Myanmar's uh, young, Yangon is more developed than Colombo. Right? So the world came in and uh, there was a, uh, a sense of new beginnings. But this issue was never resolved and began to get worse really under democracy. Uh, because also the ethnic Rakhine began to have political responsibility, so that tension now became expressed. Uh, but also I think uh, uh, the civilian government, uh, I think to some extent they just didn't, I mean the United Nations and even the civilian government, they 
they and the international community saw this as a wonderful opening and therefore they didn't want and half the reason that they did not respond during the time was because they just wanted so much not to go back to a military run Myanmar and if on the basis of the Rohingya issue uh, people were to leave the government or whatever it would go back to a military run government and whether that would be a good thing or bad. These are Hobson's choices and Sophie's choices people have to make and that's why I think the international community is sometimes appears uh, divided. But there's no excuse, uh, I think, uh, for to have, I mean, you have to have moral clarity uh, on something, an event so big. And I think uh, gradually we're getting there. You've just mentioned how the situation of the Rohingya has gotten worse since elements of democracy mm. have been restored in Myanmar. That almost seems counterintuitive. All of us are brought up to think that democracy will enhance the rights of citizens. Uh, in While speaking about these issues recently, we've also referred time and again to the phrase murderous majorities. Mm. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on this tension between democracy and minority rights. Well, it's, it's a calm, even in Sri Lanka, things got really bad after democracy. Uh, in many parts of the world, democracy uh, brings on this tension between the majority and the minority. Um, and the term murderous majorities was used by Mukul Ketraman to say that we have majorities who believe that democracy means winner takes all. Uh, and uh, that there is no need to deal with at all with the minority issue if you win the election. Uh, but in some sense, over the last century, we have come to a more deeper understanding of democracy, meaning that we work toward consensus and, uh, you know, win-win situations. That, that is more the kind of language that is used now in democracy. But uh, I think most of the countries of Asia are really still majoritarian democracies. And I think, as you have pointed out, while your report, of course, focused on Myanmar, and Myanmar currently is getting a lot of condemnation. Some of these tendencies are being seen in different parts of the region, uh, especially well, in yes. South Asia. Yes, I think I think what is, I mean, this is my own person. This is not the view of the fact finding mission. My own personal view is that the decline uh, in universalist meta-narratives, uh, which the postmodernists love to attack in some ways, uh, that of liberalism, socialism, or even communism, we have the rise instead of uh, ethnic nationalism of the different ethnic groups. Uh, and the problem with this kind of belief is that you have no higher value system than your ethnic group, and so anything is excusable in the name of the ethnic group. Uh, and then as a, the awful forms of violence can take place because uh, you don't, that's the ultimate goal, is the enhancement of your ethnic group. And it can, so that allows for the total demonization of other people and 
And why do you think uh, this kind of an acute ethno-nationalism is on the rise? Well, because there are no other kind of ideologies uh, that are competing for them. And also I think that everybody in this era of globalization feels an existential threat. The majorities feel it, the minorities feel it. Everything, everybody is immigrating, everybody is emigrating, everybody is, money is coming, capital is building, things are moving so fast. So I think in a situation where you, you feel an existential threat as a group, you tend to then become even more, you tend to become extremely, extremely closed uh, and try to, you know, shall we say, as they say in the United States, circle the wagons. And how do you think one can counter this? What are the mechanisms? Is, it, is the answer going to come from civil society? Is it going to come from a different form of politics? Uh, one response, which again you have referred to, is uh, the uh, armed violence from mm. sections of civil society, which again is meant by, met by overwhelming force. Mm. Uh, where is the... I think armed violence, this is also, I come from, I'm a child, product of the Gandhian era. So, so uh, armed violence to me is just leads to much, uh, much more problems. I mean, the very minimal kind of armed violence of Alsa, you saw what took place in Myanmar. Uh, but I think, uh, I think, uh, I think it has to come where people, politicians, civil society, like what happened in Sri Lanka in 2015 to some extent, where across all the ethnic groups, you had the Tamil nationalists, you had the Sinhala Buddhist forces, all uniting around the theme of democracy. And Sri Lanka has a strong democratic tradition. We have to thank our forefathers for that. So when that was really being erased, you had enough of, of public response to ask for democracy. Now everybody may be disappointed and disillusioned, but that is interesting. That's also a lesson for other parts of the region that, um, especially India, for example, where there is also a very strong democratic movement and there can be, uh, can be a rallying cry around that. In Myanmar, I think the, the reformation of the army or the uh, reformists within the army have to come forward or uh, nothing will change. I'm wondering if you can reflect on the fact that uh, the disappointment with uh, democracy or uh, civilian movements against authoritarianism, ethno-nationalism, the disappointment seems to come far too easily in our region. Mm. Uh, it's 2015 is when Sri Lanka showed all of us the way mm. and it's 2018 and we're already talking about despondency and perhaps even a reversal of this mm -hmm. in the near future. Well, I think that countering the ideology of democracy is the ideology of the strong man, which is also strong in Asia. You know, they talk about Lee Kuan Yew or they, you know, like. Um, and coalition governments and democratic governments are messy and more susceptible to corruption because they are much more actors. Um, uh, and so I think people get fed up with this kind of chaos. chaos. Uh, so 
the ideology of the strong man is very strong in Asia, uh, uh, who will come and make quick decisions, and you know. There's a, so I think that's also there. If I can ask you a last question, uh, you have spoken publicly earlier about your earlier admiration for Aung San Suu Kyi. She is a key figure in what's happening in Myanmar, either by her silence, omissions, omission. Uh, was it very hard for you to uh -huh. be part of this team and deal with the fall of an iconic figure? Well, my personal opinion, of course, I spent a lot of my childhood uh, uh, you know, rallying for Aung San Suu Kyi, as she, along with Nelson Mandela and all these other figures at one time. Um, I remember working with Dr. Neelam Thiruchelvam, who was, uh, you know, uh, the person who was my boss and the person who showed many of us the way, to get a resolution in the Sri Lankan parliament to get her released. And, you know, Sarat Amunagama, who is now in parliament, and, all, and Neelam, who was, Dr. Thiruchelvam, who was then in parliament, all of them, and the Sri Lankan Parliament passed a resolution. We were all active in getting that passed. Um, so all of us really in Asia, especially, uh, I think, worked very hard for her uh, and did what we could to raise her issues, even within our national borders. So it has been, um, it was difficult. Uh, and I must say that uh, in my charitable moments, I feel that she's doing it because she she knows that if she resigns or doesn't do it, the military will take it take over. Uh, but in my not so charitable moments, I wonder how she lives with the conscience of this. If she is aware of the extent, of course, we had the freedom to go to Coxville and and talk to the victims and spend time with the victims. Now she hasn't done that, but still. You know, one wonders about conscience and how she lives with it. Someone like her, who obviously had a very strong, who was a conscientious objector, actually, if you would uh, call it that, for most of her life. Well, thank you very much for thank speaking you. to us. All right, thank you.